Hi, I'm Rochelle Robinson, and I recently completed my community storytelling fellowship at Making Contact. I got my voice heard. We're doing a crowdfunding campaign right now to pay the next set of radio storytellers. So please donate to our campaign. You'll see it announced at www.radioproject.org. I'm George Lavender, and this is Making Contact. First of all, um, for the majority of us, there is no tape. There is no tape. We just, you know, die. That's it. When journalist Tanahasi Coates set out to write about police killings, he went to visit Mabel Jones. Back in 2000, Jones' son, a friend of Coates from their time at Howard University, was shot and killed by police in Virginia. He was 25 years old. The second thing is to remember that, you know, when you have these folks die, that they had families, that they were people, that they were really, really full-functioning humans. And the taking of that life is just such a, a, a huge, huge uh, crime, I would go so far as to say. Written in the form of a letter to his own teenage son, Coates' book, Between the World and Me, puts police shootings in a wider context. He spoke as part of the Lannan Foundation's Pursuit of Cultural Freedom series. I think at some point, like, it's good to pause for a second, to even put the outrage and anger on pause for a second, and just back up a little bit and see if uh, we can connect the dots. And one of the things I want to suggest to you is uh, that there's a line running through the last uh, 30 or 40 years in terms of how we deal with what should be social service uh, in our cities. Uh, And what we have decided is that we will cut back on social service and we will send the police in to deal with every single issue. So this guy is like um, missing a taillight and then a child support warrant comes up on him. We decide the way to deal with that is to send somebody in uh, who uh, has been authorized by the state to kill, to use as much force as he deems necessary. Uh, we have a gentleman who's having a mental health issue, and our way of responding to that is to send somebody in who is authorized to kill in the name of the state. We have somebody having a drug issue, and our response to that is to send in somebody who we've authorized to kill, to use as much force as he deems necessary. And if you know anything about the jurisprudence of this country, it's very, very hard, very, very hard to, you know, uh, first of all, get a police officer to actually lose his job through the use of force, much less be convicted of anything. We have pretty much given carte blanche to officers to use as much force as necessary. But the fact of the matter is we are deploying force to solve our problems. We are deploying people with guns. Our police officers are not drug counselors. Police officers are not mental health professionals. Police officers are not, you know, caseworkers, you know, for dealing with childhood. But our answer is not to deploy uh, people who have expertise in these fields somehow. It's to deploy police officers. And you can see this, like, logic running through, like, uh, when, when Sandy Hook happened, the answer was to put guns in the hands of teachers, to make teachers more like the police, in fact. And the idea is that guns can solve all our problems, that we can, you know, deploy force in all our problems. And so I think, you know, we, we, we could do ourselves a favor by just stepping back for a second. You know, I, I saw the man, he said he you know, wanted to put body cameras, you know, on everybody. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm for body cameras. But I think the question needs to be asked, why are we sending the police in the first place? Why are you deploying the police in the first place? It makes everybody feel good. You get your blood up when you get to talk about how bad this guy was. You know, anger serves a kind of purpose. We can all unify uh, around our rage. That's an easy call. 
The hard calls are the calls that, that cost money. This was not too far from what we saw down in Ferguson also. I mean, if you think about it, right? We had the Justice Department report that comes out, and we find that basically uh, Ferguson has turned its police force into a tax collection agency, that the police are, be- are being used basically as a funding mes- mechanism for municipal government. Why is that happening? What's going on? There's a broader social safety net, a broader social question that confronts us. Besides, you know, or it's bigger than body camps, bigger than a few bad police officers. I've been thinking about this for some time. I've been thinking about it actually since I was a child in West Baltimore, to be honest. Didn't even know I was thinking of it, but I was. And I've come to this point where I have, a, a, you know, a child myself who's growing up in this time. You know, and is becoming, you know, politically conscious in this time, you know, and is having, you know, things revealed to him in this time. And, you know, he, the president that he will remember most will be an African-American president. You know, and yet he sees in his city, you know, what's going on with Aragon. He saw what happened down in Ferguson. You know, he's seeing, you know, what happened yesterday uh, down in uh, South Carolina. It's just too many cases to name, to be honest. It's just way, way, way too many. And it's affecting his consciousness. And I, 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 I had an idea Uh, to try to explain to my son, to give him some insight um, into um, what it meant to become conscious in this world, how you were supposed to deal with yourself, how you were supposed to carry yourself. And as it turns out, you know, I I had, you know, quite a bit of experiences. I I mentioned earlier that I've been thinking about this since I was, you know, a really, really young man. Because the question of your body, the question of your bodily safety is so key to African-American identity. It's been key since the moment we got here as as, as enslaved peoples. Uh, It has remained key but it, it, it takes so many uh, other forms and, you know, uh, afflicts us in, in so many ways. And I got to thinking, how can I talk to my son about this? When I was a young man at Howard University, I had a, a friend by the name of Prince Jones. Um, when people will say things like twice as good, that, that's who Prince Jones is. When your parents urge you to go be twice as good, that, that's who Prince Jones uh, is, or I should say was. Uh, six foot four. You know, he'd been an athlete in high school, handsome, big, beautiful smile, you know, intelligent, deeply, deeply religious. He was born again uh, and just incredibly, incredibly smart. Prince was from um, the Dallas area, and he attended a magnet school uh, in, in, in Texas. Uh, and the magnet school was for math and science. And, you know, for the entire four years he was there, he was the only African-American student there. Texas is a big state, and, you know, you can imagine being the only black kid there. It's pretty incredible. And his mom had been, you know, a, a, a relatively affluent. She had grown up in grinding poverty, had rose, you know, become a radiologist and was doing pretty well. And she gave Prince all the best things that, that he wanted. And that meant, you know, because, you know, she wanted the best for him, in, in large respect, he didn't really grow up around African-Americans. And then, you know, when he turned 18 and it was time for him to go away, he decided he wanted to come to Howard University. Uh, there are generally two types of people that come to Howard University where I went to school. Uh, there are people who, you know, have grown up around nothing but black people and, you know, kind of don't know any better like me. Um, and then there are people who have grown up around white people and are just tired and want to be around people that look like them, you know? <laughs> And they're not tired because white people, you know, have lighter skin than them. You know, they're not tired because white people have blonde hair, you know. Um, They are tired because uh, they, you know, spend a great deal of their scholastic experience explaining themselves, interpreting themselves, being a spokesperson uh, for other groups of people. And at Howard University, you kind of were just free to be. And I met Prince Jones there, and I I adored Prince Jones, and, you know, I loved him. And he's just a beautiful 
guy, I can remember the last time I saw him, I was at the gym and he was, you know, doing really well and he was, you know, about to finish up at Howard. And, you know, and every time I talked to him, you know, you just have this warm, you know, sort of glowing feeling as, as you walked away. And um, in September of 2000, uh, Prince Jones, um, Prince Jones was driving uh, from Prince George's County uh, and he had dropped his daughter off to, you know, stay with some friends for uh, the night, and he was going to see his fiance. <clears throat> and um, the police in Prince George's County were out looking for uh, somebody who had stole, stolen an officer's gun, and they confused his Jeep with, with this gentleman's. Um, the gentleman who they confused him with uh, was roughly like 5'8 or something like that. Prince was about 6'4". Um, they followed Prince Jones out of Prince George's County, through Washington, D.C., into Virginia, within mere yards of his fiance's house, and they shot and they killed him. And I was at home, and I, you know, I picked up the, the uh, you know, I was checking through the papers, and I, I saw the papers, and Prince George's County has one of the most brutal police departments in the country. Uh, I had at that time, definitely. Um, and so when, to hear that they had shot somebody, you know, uh, under such circumstances was not a particularly original insight. And I remember, you know, the first time I saw it, I just kind of looked away. And then the next day it was news again, and I saw that the person who had gotten shot was from Howard University. And on the third day I looked, and there was a picture of, 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 of my brother, Prince Jones. Um, and it was devastating. It was utterly, utterly devastating. And when it came time to, to do this book, I was so interested in, you know, just going back and trying to explore what that meant to me. And I wanted to explain it to my son. And in the course of doing that, uh, I went to see uh, Prince Jones's mother, who, lived, uh, in, who lives in Philadelphia. And I just wanted to talk to her a little bit about her son. I had never met her. I wanted to hear about him uh, through her eyes. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tanahashi Coates, recorded at the Lannan Foundation's Pursuit of Cultural Freedom series. This is Making Contact. For more information about this or any of our programs, go to radioproject.org. You can also like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Making underscore Contact. Up next, Tanahashi Coates reads from Between the World and Me about his visit with Prince Jones' mother. The book takes the form of a letter written to Coates' teenage son, Zamari. Her disposition toward life was that of an elite athlete who knows the opponent is dirty and the refs are on the take, but also knows the championship is one game away. She called her son, Prince Jones, Rocky, in honor of her grandfather who went by Rock. I asked about his children because the fact is that I had, no, I had not known Prince all of that well. He was among the people I would be happy to see at a party who I would describe to a friend as a good brother, though I could not really account for all of his comings and goings. So she sketched him for me that I, so I may better understand. She said that he'd once hammered a nail into an electrical socket and shorted out the whole house. She said that he once dressed himself in a suit and got down on, a knee, on one knee and sung three times a lady to her. She said he'd gone to private schools his entire life, schools filled with dreamers, but he made friends wherever he went, in Louisiana and later in Texas. I asked how his friend's parents treated her. She said, by then, I was chief of radiology at the local hospital, and so they treated me with respect. She said this with no love in her eyes, coldly, as though she were explaining a mathematical function, which is exactly what she was doing. Like his mother, <clears throat> Prince was smart. 
In high school, he was admitted to a Texas magnet school for math and science where students acquire college credit. Despite the school drawing from a state with roughly the population of Angola, Australia, or Afghanistan, Prince was the only black child. I asked Dr. Jones if she had wanted him to go to Howard. She smiled and said no. Then she added, it is so nice to be able to talk about this. This relaxed me a little because I could think of myself as something more than an intrusion. I asked her where she wanted him to go for college, and she said, Harvard. And if not Harvard, Princeton. And if not Princeton, Yale. And if not Yale, Columbia. And if not Columbia, Stanford. (laughs) He was that caliber of student. But like at least one-third of all the students who came to Howard, Prince was tired of having to represent to other people. These Howard students were not like me. They were the children of the Jackie Robinson elite, whose parents rose up out of ghettos in the sharecropping fields, went out into the suburbs, only to find that they carried the mark with them and could not escape. Even when they succeeded, as so many did, they were singled out, made examples of, transfigured into parables of diversity. They were symbols and markers, never children or young adults. And so they came to Howard University to be normal, and even more, to see how broad the black normal really is. Prince did not apply to Harvard. He did not apply to Princeton. He did not apply to Yale, nor Columbia, nor Stanford. He only wanted to come to the Mecca. I asked Dr. Jones if she regretted Prince choosing Howard. She gasped. It was as though I had pushed too hard on a bruise. No, she said. I regret that he's dead. She said this with great composure and greater pain. She said this with all the odd poise and direction that the American injury demands of you. Have you ever taken a hard look at those pictures from the sit-ins in the 60s? I mean, a hard, serious look. Have you ever looked at the faces? The faces are neither angry nor sad nor joyous. They betray almost no emotion. They look out past their tormentors, past us, and focus on something way beyond anything ever known to me. I think they are fastened to their God, a God whom I cannot know and in whom I do not believe, but God or not, the armor is all over them and it is real. Or perhaps it is not armor at all. So many of these protesters were injured, some of them so much that they would stand with the man who murdered Martin Luther King Jr., Perhaps it is a kind of life extension, a kind of loan allowing you to take the assaults heaped upon you now and you pay down the debt later. Whatever it is, that same look is what I, what I see in those pictures, noble and vacuous. That was the look I saw in Mabel Jones. It was in her sharp brown eyes which well but did not break. She held so much under her control. And I was sure in the days since her rocky was plundered, since her lineage was robbed, They had demanded nothing less. And she could not lean on her country for help. When it came to her son, Dr. Jones's country did what it did best. It forgot him. The forgetting is habit. It is yet another necessary component of the dream. They have forgotten the scale of theft that enriched them in slavery, the terror that allowed them for a century to pilfer the vote, the segregationist policy that gave them their suburbs. They have forgotten because to remember would tumble them out of the beautiful dream and force them to live down here with us, down here in the world. I am convinced that the dreamers, at least the dreamers of today, would rather live white than live free. In the dream, they are Buck Rogers. In the dream, they are Prince Aragorn. In the dream, they are an entire race of Skywalkers. To awaken them 
is to reveal that they are an empire of men, like all empires of men, and are built on the destruction of the body. It is to stain their nobility, to make them vulnerable, fallible, breakable humans. Dr. Jones was asleep when the phone rang. It was 5 a.m. and on the phone was a detective telling her she should drive to Washington. Rocky was in the hospital. Rocky had been shot. She drove with her daughter. She was sure he was still alive. She paused several times as she explained this. She went directly to the ICU. Rocky was not there. A group of men with authority, doctors, lawyers, detectives perhaps, took her into a room and told her that he was gone. She paused again. She did not cry. Composure was too important now. It was unlike anything I had felt before, she told me. It was extremely physically painful, so much so that whenever I thought of him, all I could do was pray and ask for mercy. I thought I was going to lose my mind and go crazy. I felt sick. I felt like I was dying. I asked if she expected that the police officer who shot Prince would be charged. She said, yes. Her voice was a cocktail of emotions. She spoke like an American, with the same expectations of fairness, even fairness belated and begrudged that she took into medical school all those days ago. And she spoke like a black woman, with all the pain that undercuts those exact feelings. I now wondered about her daughter, who'd been recently married. There was a picture on display of this daughter and her new husband. She was not optimistic. She was intensely worried about her daughter bringing a son into America because she could not save him. She could not secure his body from the ritual violence that had claimed her son. She compared America to Rome. She said she thought the glory days of the country had long passed, and even those glory days were sullied. They had been built on the bodies of others. And we can't get the message, she said. We don't understand that we are embracing our deaths. I asked Dr. Jones if her mother was still alive. She told me that her mother had passed away in 2002 at the age of 89. I asked Dr. Jones how her mother had taken Prince's death, and her voice retreated into an almost whisper, and Dr. Jones said, I don't know that she did. She alluded to 12 years a slave. There he was, she said, speaking of Solomon Northup. He had means. He had a family. He was living like a human being. And one racist act took him back. And the same is true of me. I spent years developing a career, acquiring assets, engaging responsibilities, and one racist act. It's all it takes. And then she talked again of all that she had through great industry, through unceasing labor, acquired in the long journey from grinding poverty. She spoke of how her children had been raised in luxury, annual ski trips, jaunts off to Europe. She said that when her daughter was studying Shakespeare in high school, she took her to England. And when her daughter got her driver's license at 16, a Mazda 626 was waiting in front. I sensed some connection to this desire to give and the raw poverty of her youth. I sensed it was all as much for her as it was for her children. She said Prince had never taken to material things. He loved to read. He loved to travel. But when he turned 23, she bought him a Jeep. She had a huge purple bow put on it. She told me that she could still see him there, looking at that Jeep and simply saying, thank you, Mom. Without interruption, she added, and that was the Jeep he was killed in. 
After I left, I sat in the car idle for a few minutes. I thought of all the prince's mother had invested in him. And I thought of all that was lost. I thought of the loneliness that had sent him to the Mecca and how the Mecca, how we could not save him. How we ultimately cannot save ourselves. I thought back on the sit-ins, the protesters with their stoic faces, the ones I'd once scorned for hurling their bodies at all the worst things in life. Perhaps they knew something terrible about the world. Perhaps they so willingly parted with the security and the sanctity of the black body because neither security nor sanctity actually existed in the first place. And all those old photographs from the 1960s, all those films I beheld of black people prostrate before clubs and dogs were not simply shameful. Indeed, were not shameful at all. They were just true. We are captured, brother, surrounded by the majoritarian bandits of America. And this has happened here in our only home. And the terrible truth is that we cannot will ourselves to an escape on our own. Perhaps that was is the hope of the movement to awaken the dreamers, to rouse them to the facts of of what their need to be white, their need to talk like they are white, their need to think like they are white, what it is that that dream has done and all the design flaws it has exposed of humanity and what it has done to the world. But you cannot arrange your life around them. You cannot arrange your life around the infinitesimal chance of the dreamers coming into consciousness. Our moment, our time here is just too brief. Our bodies are too precious, and you are here now, and you must live. And there is so much out here for you to live for, not just in someone else's country, but in your own home. The warmth of dark energies that drew me to the Mecca, that drew out Prince Jones, the warmth of our particular world is beautiful, no matter how brief and how breakable. I think back to our trip to homecoming. I think back to the warm blast rolling over us. We were at the football game. We were sitting in the bleachers with old friends and their children, caring neither for fumbles or first downs. I remember looking towards the goalposts and watching a pack of alumni cheerleaders so enamored with Howard University that they had donned their old colors and took out the uniforms a little bit so they'd fit. I remember them dancing. They'd shake, freeze, shake again, and when the crowd yelled, do it, do it, do it, A black woman two rows in front of me in her tightest jeans stood and shook as though she was not somebody's mama. And the past 20 years had barely been a week. I remember walking down to the tailgate party without you. I could not bring you, but I have no problem telling you what I saw. The entire diaspora around me. Hustlers, lawyers, cappers, busters, doctors, barbers, deltas, drunkards, geeks, and nerds. The DJ hollered into the mic. The young folks pushed towards him. A young man pulled out a bottle of cognac and twisted off the the cap. A girl with him smiled, tilted her head back, and bobbed and laughed. Fifty strains of marijuana were washing over me. Fifty strains of black people were washing over me. And I felt myself disappearing into all of their bodies. The birthmark of damnation faded. And I could feel the weight of my arms. And I could hear the heave in my breath. And I was not talking then because there was no point. That was a moment, a joyous moment beyond the dream, a moment imbued by a power more gorgeous than any voting rights bill. This power, this black power, originates in a view of the American galaxy taken from a dark and essential planet. Black power is the dungeon side view of Monticello, which is to say the view that is taken in struggle. 
And black power births a kind of understanding that illuminates all the galaxies in their truest colors. Even the dreamers lost in their great revelry feel it. For it is Billy that they reach for in sadness. And mob deep is what they holler in boldness. And Isley is what they hum in love. And Dre is what they yell in revelry. And Aretha is the last sound they hear before dying. We have made something down here. We have taken the one drop rules of the dreamers and we have flipped them. They made us into a race. We made ourselves into a people. Here at Howard, at the Mecca, under pain of selection, we have made a home, as do black people on summer blocks marked with needles, vials, and hopscotch squares, as did black people dancing it out at rent parties, as do black people at their family reunions where we all regard each other like the survivors of catastrophe as do black people toasting their cognac and German beers, passing their blunts and debating MCs, as do all of us who have voyaged through death to life upon these shores. That was the love, the power that drew in Prince Jones. The power is not divinity, but a deep knowledge of how fragile everything, even the dream, especially the dream, really is. Sitting in the car, I thought of Dr. Jones's predictions of national doom. I had heard such predictions all my life from Malcolm X and all of his posthumous followers who hollered that the dreamers must reap what they sow. I saw the same predictions in the words of Marcus Garvey, who promised to return in a whirlwind of vengeful ancestors, an army of middle passage undead. No, I left the Mecca knowing that that was all too pat, knowing that should the dreamers reap what they had sown, we would reap it right along with them. Plunder has matured into habit and addiction. The people who could author the mechanized death of our ghettos, the mass rape of private prisons, then engineer their own forgetting must inevitably plunder much more. This is not a belief in prophecy, but in the seductiveness of cheap gasoline. Once the dream's parameters were caged by technology and by the limits of horsepower and wind, but the dreamers have improved themselves and the damming of seas for voltage, the extraction of coal, the transmuting of oil into food have enabled them in expansion and plunder with no known precedent. And this revolution has freed the dreamers to plunder not just the bodies of humans, but the body of the earth itself. The earth is not our creation. It has no respect for us. It has no use for us. And its vengeance is not the fire in the cities, but the fire in the sky. Something more fierce than Marcus Garvey is is riding in on the whirlwind. Something more awful than all of our African ancestors is rising with the seas. The two phenomena are known to each other. It was the cotton that passed through our chained hands that inaugurated this industrial age. It is the flight from us that sent them sprawling into the subdivided woods. And the method of transport through these new subdivisions across that great sprawl is the automobile. The noose around the neck of the earth and ultimately the dreamers themselves. I drove away from the house of Mabel Jones thinking of all of this. I drove away, as always, thinking of you. I do not believe we can stop them, Samari, because they must ultimately stop themselves. And still I urge you to struggle. Struggle for the memory of your ancestors. Struggle for wisdom. Struggle for the warmth of Mecca. Struggle for your grandmother and grandfather. Struggle for your name. But do not struggle for them. Hope for them. Pray for them if you are so moved. But do not spend your struggle on anyone else's conversion. 
The dreamers will have to learn to struggle themselves, as we did, to understand that the field for their dream, the stage where they have painted themselves white, is the deathbed of us all. Self-deception has matured into habit. It is the same habit that endangers the planet, the same habit that sees our bodies stowed away in prisons and ghettos. I saw these ghettos driving back from Dr. Jones's home. They were the same ghettos I had seen in Chicago all those years ago, the same ghettos where my mother was raised, the same ghettos where my father was raised. Through the windshields, I saw the mark of these ghettos, the abundance of beauty shops, churches, liquor stores, and crumbling housing, and I felt the old fear. Through the windshield, I saw the rain coming down in sheets. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to the Lannan Foundation for use of their recording. You can find us online at radioproject.org. You'll also find all the information you need there to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or however you listen to podcasts. Then join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Making Contact. The Making Contact team includes Juan Booth, Laura Flynn, Jasmine Lopez, Lisa Rudman, and Andrew Stelzer. I'm George Lavender. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Music